thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, and as most of you know, May here on the show is Top Gun Month. We're talking all things Top Gun, the Navy Fighter Weapons School, and Top Gun, the blockbuster movie, in preparation for the long-awaited sequel, now just days away. Well, in that spirit, it seemed fitting to revisit one of our earliest episodes from back in 2018, our first year of podcasting. It's episode seven, cleverly titled Top Gun versus Top Gun, and it pitted the school versus the original movie, and it featured my good friend and fishing buddy, Andy Mariner, who returns to the show to help us revisit the topic. Hello, Grant. Welcome back. Great to be back, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure, man. So, hey, tell you what, we want to know what's new with you and Top Gun, the institution. I mean, it's been five years since we recorded, but tell you what, let's play the interview and then we'll circle back and get caught up and fill in some details. What do you say? Sounds good to me. Let's do it. Okay, today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, I am joined by my very good friend, Commander Andy Mariner, United States Navy, call sign Grand. Grand, welcome to the show, buddy. Joe, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, hey, before we get to the subject at hand, listeners need to get to know you. Give us a little background on yourself, if you would. So I was actually uh, born in Fargo, North Dakota, probably wondering why I joined the Navy being so far from uh, an actual ocean, but I actually had two cousins before me that went to the Naval Academy. And I elected to go do that as well and uh, get my commission via that route. I'd always wanted to fly airplanes. So when I graduated, I went to flight school in Pensacola. And got selected to fly jets, which was pretty awesome. So completed my jet training and got trained in the F-18 Hornet in uh, Lemoore, California, and I've flown Hornets ever since. Uh, I was most recently the CO, the commanding officer of VFA-105, a strike fighter squadron located in Oceana, Virginia. And I'm currently serving as the commanding officer of Top Gun or the Navy Fighter Weapons School. That is the subject of our discussion today. So Top Gun, Navy Fighter Weapons School, what is that? So the listener, I hope, is probably familiar with the movie by a similar name, slightly different arrangement of letters. But what is Top Gun? So Top Gun was founded back in 1969. Maybe people don't know that. If they've seen the movie, they've probably seen those opening credits that talk about the history. And that's probably one of the things the movie actually did get right. It was founded by guys who had to scrounge for resources and assets in order to make naval aviation better, make them better warfighters. They were able to put together a school that basically got graduate level training uh, available for folks in the fleet to get it back out to the fleet and give that good training back to the rest of the folks out there. And it's morphed over time. Obviously, it started early on focusing on air-to-air employment during Vietnam. The kill ratios for the Navy were pretty lackluster in the early years of Vietnam, and they knew they needed something different. So they elected to form this school. And today, it's morphed into something much bigger and a trained strike fighter aviators to be those tactical experts, makes them the best JOs in the fleet, and we send them back out there to be training officers. So J.O. being junior officer. So these are lieutenants similar to, and again, I'll draw parallels to the movie because again, that's what people are familiar with, but Maverick was a lieutenant by rank in that. So guys that come to Top Gun, you're calling it a school, but it's not necessarily an initial school, like flight school per se. Yeah, you're exactly right. This is graduate level training. This is these guys, well, you could call it getting their master's degree, I suppose, because they've done the initial training. They've gotten good in the fleet and they're so good that we selected them to go to Top Gun to make sure that they got that added bit of training so that they can go back out and make the rest of the fleet just as good as they are. So they become the subject matter experts. I mean, every F-18 pilot should be, hopefully, good at what they do, but these are the no-kidding experts. So when you wear that patch on your flight suit or jacket, you're conveying that you have made the cut to be a Top Gun graduate. So you say that it started because we weren't very good at the time. So we had some guys that basically, like you said, got the resources they needed to come up with this school. It started in uh, Miramar, San Diego area in uh, California. And in 1996, I believe it was, it moved up to its current location. Right. It's now moved up to Fallon, Nevada, the oasis of the desert, if you will. Real great place to live. You guys should come visit sometime. (laughs) About an hour east of Reno. Is that correct? Hour east on I-80 from Reno. And you said earlier, it started based on 
poor air-to-air performance. But today, it takes F-18 pilots and makes them at the top level of what they do. So it's more than just air-to-air. So what does the course look like today? So yeah, and if you think about it, you go back to 1969, all of our platforms they were good at what they did. The F-4s were great at air-to-air employment, and those certain squadrons did what they needed to do. The A-4s and the A-7s would go out there and bomb. And, you know, back in the day, like you talked about before we moved up to Fallon, you had Strike U and Fallon, and you had Top Gun down at Miramar. Now we both fall together under the same boss, which is fine. Obviously, Top Gun still does what it needs to do, but we don't really have the luxury of specializing in the FA-18 Hornet, obviously the F standing for fighter and the A standing for attack. So we have to do both roles. So we take these students all the way through 1v1 basic fighter maneuvers where they learn how to basically control the jet and fight 1v1 against another guy in close quarters. And then we take them through air to surface phase where they learn how to use the jet to bomb and do close air support or cast. From there, we go into section phase, which is basically taking two ships out to operate together. And again, that works them up on the fundamentals of basically using the radar, visual lookout, and then executing 2v1 maneuvering. So two jets against one in very close quarters. And then to cap it all off, we take them through division phase where they'll execute with three students and one instructor. So four jets total in the division. And we'll bring that high-end threat for them to face. And then what we've also added most recently is fighter integration. So we'll bring fifth-gen platforms like the F-35 up to Fallon, and they'll see that firsthand getting to go out there and operate with a next-gen fighter. So fifth-gen, next-gen, just meaning unlike F-14s and F-18s, these are platforms that have advanced sensor fusion. I mean, there's everything's coming together. You have incredible situational awareness. Plus they probably have stealth. It's a leap in generational capabilities is really what it is over the uh, F-18s. How long is the course? Course right now is about 12 weeks, depending on the class size. And that changes all the time. And we execute three classes a year starting in January, again in May. And then we start a final class in August and they'll run anywhere between 12 to 14 weeks, depending on the class size. So when they're going through, you said, first off, they'll do a one versus one. So they're working on the fundamentals of maneuvering their aircraft to not only, you know, if you start in a neutral setting, let's say, to try to get to the advantage on the other guy. But if you start in a defensive situation, you want to neutralize. Or if you have someone off your nose, you want to keep that offensive capability. So you're trying to become an expert at that. But then in the two and four plane flights or phase of training, are you flying against other aircraft or adversaries or who are you training against? Yeah, you're training against the other adversaries. That's one of the neat things about the class that we run is we don't do just strike fighter instructors. We also create adversary instructors and we're going to create air intercept controllers or AIC. So there's going to be folks that are OSs, they're going to be enlisted. And we usually bring OS ones or first class petty officers or OSCs who are OS chiefs operational specialists, uh, OS is what that stands for. Mm -hmm. And they're going to come up to Fallon and we're going to work together. The adversary students are going to come and they're going to lead hops against the fighters all the while, while the AIC is controlling those fighters when they're going out there to do their job. Okay. So the controller you're talking about, again, drawing the parallel back to the movie is the guy, it was either the beginning or the end, or maybe both. I don't recall, but he's the one talking to the fighter pilots, telling them, Hey, here's where the bogeys are. How many miles away? Yeah, exactly. That guy looking at that old green blippy radar screen, the old scope, the, okay. the old scope on the carry there. But yeah, he's the guy that we're bringing out to Fallon, the guy or gal that we're bringing out to Fallon to execute that from our building as they go out and do their training. So a team of, or a group or whatever of what, 14 students will show up. Most of them are your future strike fighter tactics instructors, which is a Top Gun graduate. But some of them, like you said, are the adversary. So you might have two guys are in the same class and are friends, but in fact, they're kind of on different sides of the game, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you think about it, we bring generally between eight and 10 Navy crews. And I say crews because we also bring F-18Fs, which are the two-seat variant of the uh, F-18 Super Hornet. So we're going to bring weapon systems officers as well. So a nine-crew class could have three F-crews. So in the end, you could wind up with actually 12 total strike fighter instructors. And our adversary classes are anywhere between three and five folks. And our AICs are, again, anywhere between three and five folks, depending on the number of applicants. And we're also flying all gamuts of airplanes when those guys come up. So our adversary folks are flying F-5s. They're flying F-16s. They're flying F-18 Hornets, depending on where they're coming from. They're running every different type model series of airplane when they come to Fallon. So I imagine that class is pretty tight by the end of that thing because that's a pretty arduous course. Yeah, and you can find, you do the math, there's 21, 22 folks all going through and 
you know, I still know all the guys I went through, even the AICs and the adversaries that were there while I was going through the class. That's pretty cool. So the two friends who are on opposite sides, I mean, is there that adversarial relationship like you might see in the movie? I mean, is it painful or are they friends or how, how is it? No, and I think that's a great point. You know, you look at the movie and they're making it like a competition, but in the end, we want these guys to for lack of a better word, cooperate to graduate, right? These guys are going through something that's very difficult. And, you know, you talked about the 1v1 BFM, the basic fighter maneuver syllabus. If you see how these guys go through that, they're reflying those hops over and over again just to learn the basic sight pictures. And guess what? They're helping each other. You walk into the first couple of days of the class and what they've got to do is they've actually got to give the brief as a lab. So they're going to brief what they're going to go out there and do they don't go fly it right afterwards, but they're going to brief a very savvy instructor on what they're going to go out and do. And you'll watch the first few days of the course, the students are briefing each other on how to go out there and do that to help each other out, to give critiques and to help out with the brief so that when they face the instructor for the first time, they're actually going to do well and pass it. And what's the big deal on the brief? Is it not just, hey, here's what we're doing today. Let's go. No. And see, that's probably another kind of thing that you got to think about from the movie where they're like high-fiving and walking to the jets and going, <laughs> I'm not going to say it because I'll get fined $20. But you go through the brief at Top Gun and you're actually spending 45 minutes to an hour talking about the minutia of exactly what you're going to go out there and do in detail. You're not leaving anything out. You want to make sure that you brief to basically good execution and you want to brief to success. So whatever mission you're going to go out there and do, you want to make sure you cover all the highlights so that when you get out there, I don't want to say it as a bad way, but you don't want to waste the time and the gas. Because if you think about it, we're sending four airplanes out there to face eight to 10 adversary airplanes. So each time you're sending 14 airplanes airborne for those three students to get one look at that division ride. And guess what? They still refly division rides. So they don't get it right the first time. But going through those briefing labs just helps them to understand what they need to focus on when they go out there to actually do the hop. So there's a lot of involvement in the preparation for the flight, right? Probably a lot more than the flight itself. Oh yeah, way more than the flight. And then what happens when we get back? You know, we're all, again, we have all seen the gutsiest move. Are you not allowed to quote the movie, by the way? I will not quote the movie here. You can quote okay, the good. movie all you want, uh, <laughs> So, you know, we're all familiar with uh, so-and-so does a whatever maneuver and gutsiest move. I mean, when you guys get back, do you just watch the cartoon characters fly at each other and then call it a day? Or is it a pretty quick debrief? I would say it's way more in-depth than what you saw in Top Gun, the movie. So you think about our class structure and the these kids are getting up at 445 in the morning in the summertime when it's light early. These guys are having their first briefs at five in the morning and the first takeoffs are at 730. So they're briefing an hour and 30 minutes prior to takeoff. We give them an hour to walk. And then when they land after probably a 45 minute hop at the tactical airspeeds, we're talking here and going through gas pretty quickly. They're spending the first 45 minutes validating their shots making sure that what they did was valid out there. And then we're going to go into the mass debrief and we're going to sit and we're going to watch the entire thing up on the display. And we're going to rerun through the whole thing, basically stopping to make sure that guys took valid shots. And then we're going to kill, remove the enemy. That's going to take anywhere between 40 and 45 minutes. And then post that, we're actually going to do a comm review to make sure that we were using the proper comm terms. And I guess you probably want to know why that's important. Comm is difficult. Guys are listening to two radios sometimes four, depending on what the systems they've got installed on the aircraft. You think about that for a second. No one can listen to four radios and talk on four radios at the same time. So these guys got to get good at getting what they want out there, making sure that what they say is what everybody in the flight needs to know. So we go through that and we're tough on each other, right? Basically the rules for a comedy are you get three seconds to correct yourself. And if you don't, someone else is going to correct you. And it's good. It's a good form of peer pressure for these guys. Because we're all type A personalities in this kind of business. All the kids who come through the class are type A personalities. I keep saying kids. I feel so old when I'm saying kids about these <laughs> By guys. Our standards the they, class. Are. they are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel old now when it's been 11, 12 years since I actually sat and went through the class. And here I am, the boss of the place where the guys are going through. But yeah, and we'll go through that comm debrief. And basically, that's at one time speed. So they're watching the whole thing back through. So if the fight took 30 minutes, we're spending 30 minutes listening back to the comm. What am I adamant about an hour and 15 minutes for the debrief? And it's still not over because now they're going to go back and look at their tapes. They're going to go look at their mechanics. They're going to go look and make sure they use the radar correctly. And they're going to find the debriefing points and things that they want to work on for the next flight. Because guess what? If it's their 4.1 ride, which is their first division ride, 
So again, four airplanes going out there, they're probably going to refly it. They're probably going to go do it again. So they want to learn what went wrong the first time so they can go back out and do it well the next time. Why so many reflies? Just because the standard is so high? I think you're right. We set the bar high and we do it on purpose because we want a quality product to go back out to the fleet. Again, you got to think the fleet is putting a lot of time and resources into these kids to get them the patch. We want them to be as good as they can be when they come out of a 12-week course. So in your earlier example, if there was a five o'clock brief, what time do you say you take off? About seven something. About 7.30. And then they land about maybe 8.39 or 8.30, let's call it. So what time is that crew going to be done with everything? So if they land at 8.30, their debrief is probably going to start somewhere around 9.30, 9.45. So you can imagine by lunchtime, they're probably getting to the tapes. So I would think by you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they might be finally wrapping up the debrief of the brief. Wow. And that's one thing I forgot to mention. You're going to go back and we're going to debrief how you briefed <laughs> to get you to the level we need you to be at briefing. Again, if I think about with that, though, and realize is that once they brief first, and if they do wind up refining the flight, the instructor may elect to call them brief complete. And then the next day, they're going to basically go to a tactical brief and then just brief for what they need for success that day. Whatever's unique to that day. Which will make it a little shorter. Yeah. yeah. It'll make it so they're not spending an hour in there talking about the hop. They're going to spend maybe 15 minutes talking about kind of the admin stuff, you know, getting the airplanes out to the uh, working area and just maybe three or four things they need to highlight for tactical execution that maybe they messed up the day prior and they need to think about that day when they go out there. Cool. Let me just elaborate on a couple of things you said, and then I'll ask you a question. So uh, you talked about a tape review. I think it's worth mentioning that we have recording systems in these aircraft. Yeah. And I keep calling them tapes and tapes really haven't been around for a long time. Hey, when I came in, they were three quarter inch tapes. Right. We had 30 minutes, buddy. And eight millimeter tapes that I'm used to. <laughs> now it's all digital, right? But the idea is you can record what? Even your helmet now, right? Your sight and your helmet, your displays, your radar, everything. And you can come back and look at it all. And that's where I think correct me if I'm wrong, is where the real learning takes place. Exactly. In the end, when you come back, you just experienced it. Now you're going to pick it apart bit by bit because that's what a graduate level person needs to be able to do. And you're going to perfect it if you can. And and if necessary, go out and do it hopefully better the next day or uh, whenever they can reschedule you. And that's the whole goal. And you'd be amazed at how well these guys do at picking up on the learning points that they need to and going out the next day and executing. It's a steep learning curve for sure. Huge. Now, in the movie, at the end, when they have their little mix-up with ostensibly MiG-whatever 28s and they're really black T-38s or something, I should have probably said this at the beginning. Of course, Hollywood has to sacrifice some reality for an entertaining show. I mean, could you imagine a movie that summarized an eight-hour evolution for one lousy flight? I mean, nobody's going to want to watch that. You'd probably be a little bored, right? Right, exactly. But in the movie, there is a scene towards the end where they're kind of desperate and they, you know, he doesn't quite have the tone and that whole thing is kind of hokey anyway, but he doesn't have the tone. But the point is, is, is the system wasn't ready, squeezes the trigger anyway, and lo and behold, the missile just goes flying off into space. Well, you had said earlier, uh, shot valve, which of course I understand having lived this life, But talk for a second why it's important to validate when you squeeze the trigger and in training simulate shooting a missile. So we obviously validate because we want the missiles to go there. We want them to leave the airplane and hit the enemy aircraft that we're targeting. Have the desired effect, essentially. Yeah, I want the desired effect. I want to put, for lack of a better term, warheads on foreheads, if that's what you want to call it. But I want to teach that guy how to get really good at sitting in the cockpit, looking around at all his displays very rapidly. And going, yes, if I pull the trigger right now, I'm giving this missile the best opportunity to do that for me. And there's a lot of things that that guy's checking. Obviously, we won't go into kind of those mundane details, but he's got to get very good at going rapidly through. I mean, if you think about that, those two jets probably have 13, 1400 knots of closure. So they're coming at each other with 1400 miles an hour closure between the two of them. If you're 50, 60, 70, 80 miles away, that gets eaten up real quick when you're going those speeds. So that guy's got to get good at executing good habit patterns every time. We always talk about consistent and repeatable at Top Gun, and that's what I want to make these guys learn how to do. And they need to learn every time to look for the exact same thing 
and go, yes, if I pull the trigger and that thing comes off my airplane, it is going to go downrange and it's going to kill the bad guy. So in other words, the aircraft provides information, again, like the movie, a little hokey, but the uh, thing would follow the airplane and turn red in that example. The modern day fighter pilot has indications provided by the aircraft to say, okay, if you were to squeeze the trigger right now, you have the best chance, not 100%, but the best chance of the missile actually succeeding in what you want it to do. And in our aircraft, the systems now are pretty ergonomic compared to what it looked like in the movie. You know, in the heads up display, you're going to get an in-lar, which is a launch acceptability region. It's going to tell you, I think the missile can get there from here. Like physically make the distance. Right. Physically get there. There's going to be a lot of other indications in the cockpit. You know, in order to shoot a radar missile, I need to have some radar SA or situational awareness. I need to have the radar actually showing me a contact. That can be one thing that trips a guy up. You're kind of watching everything to make sure that the target doesn't maneuver because if the target maneuvers, it's going to be very difficult for that missile to get there. So we teach them to kind of scan very quickly all the things that they're looking for on the mission computers and in the HUD, and then they know that they're good. And again, you know, the other thing you got to think about is they actually have the master arm on. They need to actually arm the system up so that the missile will come off. And we find guys do that a lot too. You'll find that more in the air to surface when we're actually releasing ordnance that they forget to arm up. But that's one of the things that we're kind of hitting them on and then making sure that we emphasize every time is that they're checking those things. So in other words, it would be like a police officer trying to shoot his pistol, but not having exactly armed it. He's left the safety that's on. That's the okay. safety on the F-18. Okay. Very interesting. All right. So obviously a lot of effort goes into this. I mean, Going back to our earlier example, the crew that's done maybe by three o'clock, having stayed up late the night before preparing for this event, and even if they pass, now probably they've got another event the next day. Right. And they're moving on. They might as well start thinking about the next thing that's coming down the pipe. So I'm guessing weekends are pretty busy. Yep. You could say that most of the time we're flying on Saturdays or prepping on Saturdays. We do a lot of lectures from the instructors on Saturdays because we need to fly during the week. So if we need to make up some lectures or get something started, we will come in on a Saturday morning and uh, start making it happen. Well, that's why they pay you the big bucks, I guess. So pretty difficult syllabus requires a lot of effort, but also a lot of ability, I would say, which can be developed uh, specifically if you have the right attitude. Does everybody make it? No. And that's a great point. I guess we glossed over it a little bit, but Top Gun is not something that everybody's even getting invited to, right? It's a very rigorous selection process. You know, not every JO is going to get a shot at Top Gun. If you think about it, and we're taking 12 Navy pilots and WIZOs or weapon systems operators, again, every class, and there's three classes a year, that's 36 guys in the Navy that are getting a patch every year. And they don't all get the patch. Just this last class, we had to try to student. That's difficult for everyone. And again, it's not for lack of effort on their part. Usually most guys that show up here, they want to get through the class. They have the desire, but there is a bar and we set it very high. And we want to make sure that that reputation, that the patch, you know, it's iconic to me. Everybody probably knows what that patch looks like, or you can find it. Just Google it on the internet. You'll see it. It's a thing that's recognized, I think, throughout the armed forces. I mean, you go to the Air Force Weapons School down at Nellis Air Force Base. They know that patch, and they're going to search those guys out if they're down there. The Marines, they get the same patch. The MOTS-1 guys down in Yuma, those guys know what the patch is. And some of those guys even come through the class as Marine Corps pilots. But it's recognized around aviation. It's recognized around the rest of the military. So we kind of hold that near and dear to our hearts at Top Gun, and we want to make sure that those guys are upholding the standards that are set to get through that class. It's to me almost a symbol of instant credibility. That's a good segue because I use that in my lecture. So I give the patch lecture at the end of the class and it's for lack of a better word, it's a kind of a fatherhood session with all the guys that are about to get the patch. So they get the lecture from me about two hours before they actually go over to the officer's club at AS Fallon and get their patches from the rest of the staff. There's a lot of looks like deer in the headlights in there because I think they might be not afraid of me, but they think it's just another lecture and they think that they're going to get asked a lot of questions. But I usually use the kind of icebreaker at the beginning and say that, hey guys, if you're sitting in this room right now with me giving you this lecture, you're going to get your patch. Like you can't fail this lecture. There's no way you're not making it out of this room. And I tend to try to bring a little beer in so that it makes it a little bit easier to (laughs) to swallow when they sit in there and have to listen to me talk about it. But it's important. And I give them a lot of background on why Top Gun exists and then why it's important for them to go out there and represent the patch to the best of their ability. Even if they elect to get out of the Naval Service they're still a patchware forever. They're still part of the fraternity. Right. They're still part of that organization for as long as they're around. 
I remember the doors to the fleet training building, one of the buildings where Top Gun is housed, is the windows are, they're not mirrored, but you know, you see yourself as you walk into it. And I remember when I got my patch in 2000, walking to the thing, and I would just tilt my shoulder a little bit so I could look at it in the window. I was like, whoa, I got a Top Gun patch. <laughs> I'm not sure how that happened because I was definitely average, but it worked out. So you, you talk to these guys on the way out the door give them a little last minute fatherhood. And at that point, I'm thinking they felt pretty good because it's the culmination of a lot of hard work. They hurry over to the O club to get a beer after that. I imagine so. And then where do they generally go after that? That's a good point. These guys are not all staying at Top Gun. Uh, A lot of them do stay. We keep guys on staff out of every class. Uh, And just for everybody to think about too, we're starting to build strike fighter tactics instructors for the F-35 for the joint strike fighter. That's the newest basically fighter to come out. Yeah. So those guys are coming through right now. We've had two folks go through and they're going down to Lemoore or down to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida to get their training the F-35. But Right now, the vast majority of them stay on staff at Top Gun, or they go to either Type Wing Weapons School, so they go to the East Coast Weapons School in Oceana, Virginia, or they go to the West Coast Weapons School down in uh, Lemoore, California. We've got onesies and twosies that may wind up going to VX-9, going to the test community, maybe down in China Lake. And every once in a while, we'll send a guy through that goes to one of the RAGs or one of the training squadrons for both coasts, which are VFA-106 and VFA-122. So... Fallon is not a base where F-18 squadrons are typically based. And so what we have is a system, and I don't mean to denigrate the weapon schools, but they're essentially, in effect, satellites of Top Gun that exist where the squadrons are. They are. They're really the fleet training arm of Top Gun, because Nautic, in the end, or the Naval Aviation Warfighting Development Center, which is what exists in Fallon, and that's where Top Gun falls under. But they own both coast weapon schools. Basically, we use those two satellite schools to train the rest of the fleet and bring them up to that same standard. So they're on site, whereas Top Gun is off site. Now, squadrons do come to Fallon for other things besides Top Gun. They'll come up for various other training evolutions. But at those on site locations, you now have these recently minted strike fighter training instructors who are right there flying with those squadrons day in and day out. And in fact, after that tour, either at the weapon school or Top Gun, if they stay as an instructor, then you go back to one of those squadrons as a training officer. Right. That's the best part about getting the patch. I mean, it's awesome to be a bro on staff, to be a guy who stays at Top Gun. It's awesome to be at one of the weapon schools and kind of be on the cutting edge of technology, the cutting edge of tactics and all of that. But the real cool part, I think, is when you get to go back to that fleet squadron, because generally you go back and you're still a lieutenant. You're still... I'll go back to the movie. You're still Tom Cruise as he comes out of Top Gun and goes back to the Indian Ocean because they need him to go back out on deployment. But guess what? You get to go back to a fleet squadron and your sole job in life is to train that squadron and make them the best at what they do. You don't stand SDO or squadron duty officer. You're not doing a whole lot of paperwork. You're not concerned with anything else that's going on except making those guys the best at what they do. And it's awesome. I mean, I've been the CEO of a fleet operational squadron. I'm the CEO of the Navy Fighter Weapons School. The best tour I ever had was the time I spent as a training officer getting to influence young junior officers and, you know, in the end, make them want the patch just as much as I wanted it when I went through. Yeah, that's a testament to the job that you did. Now, you also train the guys above you. I mean, even the department heads and the XO and the CO need tightening, if you will, from time to time. Yeah, and there's a lot of squadrons you'll find in the fleet that the only patch wearer may very well be the training officer. And he's training the entire squadron. It's not just the rest of the JOs. It's everybody above and below. Sure. Now, one thing I thought the movie uh, missed the opportunity to do some justice on is, I mean, you've got, what, Charlie, which is, of course, the affection of Maverick. And then you've got the two guys at the top, Viper and um, Jester. But you never really see another authentic Top Gun instructor. So for the guys who stay on the staff, what is that like? What's a typical day like for them? These guys... They're probably the greatest bunch of guys to work with, guys and gals, I should say. They work their tails off. If there's a brief at 5.30 in the morning, the junior bros are the guys who are most junior on staff. They're probably in earlier prepping stuff, and even the instructors are in early. For lack of a better term, they burn the midnight oil as well. So, you know, when the day is done, you know, we talked about the 7.30 takeoff. Well, that's just the first wave, right? So that's just the first section or first division that's going out there to fly. We do three waves a day. So you put that math together and you can realize that the last guys, if they land at 4.30 in the afternoon, they're not debrief complete until probably 10.30, 11, 12 o'clock at night. But they're going to turn around. They're going to go home. 
they're going to spend what time they can with their families and they're going to come right back the next morning. They're going to start all over again. Besides that, I mean, so first off, they've graduated from Top Gun and they typically know they're going to stay before. I mean, again, it's yeah. not like all of a sudden you do something cool and they invite you, but you know, you're going to go there and that's a very rigorous selection process based on the people that are already there and your reputation. And then you're expected to not only be there early and do all those things, but I mean, you've got to now be the expert capable of teaching these graduate level students. Yeah. And so, I mean, you've got to be pretty darn good in the airplane, but what about on the ground? I mean, what about these lectures that they give? Oh yeah. You talked about it earlier, the SMEs, the subject matter experts. So these guys are the naval aviation SMEs. They are the go-to guy. So of all the Navy, they are the expert on whatever the subject is. Yeah. And it's awesome to watch too, because these are lieutenants. I mean, these are... 26, 27 year old kids. So they've been in the Navy eight or nine years, maybe. They've been in for not all that long, but they have a reputation as being the guys who know everything about what they need to know. And they do a very rigorous process to get that. I mean, obviously, I know you've done that before. They go through the process to make sure that their lecture is tight. And that includes doing a lot of pre-boards where they're getting a lot of good input from a lot of the other bros on staff. And I say pre-board, so they've got a lecture they've got to do. And you know their lecture could be anywhere from two hours in length to four and a half hours in length. And they're basically spending that entire time in 30 to 35 minute segments teaching the students how to do a certain area. So we can break it down and we can talk about it. So you know, we've got an 1v1 air combat SME. So he's a Marine on staff right now, but he's got a two-part lecture where he talks them through, just like we talked about earlier, offensive, defensive, and high aspect BFM. And he's going to teach those guys everything they need to know. But he's also SME to the fleet. So let's just say a squadron in Lemoore has a question about BFM, or they want to change something about the training rules, or they want to change something about, you name it, or they want to know, or they want to get some more information they're going to call that guy. So he's got to be the best he can be at his subject matter expertise area so that he can answer those questions. And I'm not just talking about other JOs. I've watched these guys. I say it kind of lightheartedly, but I've seen them go toe to toe with admirals and put the information out there. They are so confident and they know what they're talking about that they are willing. And I'm willing to let them go toe to toe with captains and admirals because I know that they know the answer and I know that they're right. Yeah, well, those are the guys making the decisions and they need the advice of the expert. And they need the unfiltered advice of the guy who knows exactly what's going on out there. Well, that's one privilege of being on the Top Gun staff is you generally have pretty incredible uh, credibility. The aptly named murder board process that you uh, alluded to there, having gone through it, both of us have, it is aptly named because what they try to do, correct me if I'm wrong, is make the training environment, because you have so much to teach and so little time and so condensed there can't be any distractions. So it's not just, do you know the material, but it's, can you present it articulately? Can you avoid doing silly things with your body that distract people? Can you convey it? Can you ask questions? Can you compose yourself? And I'll tell you a quick story. When I went through the class in March of 2000, there was an instructor who had his murder board the day before. It was a homie Cedar home. I think he's like a one or two star general now in the Marine Corps. And his lecture, it was on, I want to say threat air to air missiles was so flawless that I was actually distracted because I thought, when is he going to make a mistake? His body position, his hands, everything he talked about. And oh, by the way, for folks that aren't aware, I mean, we're not like reading notes and there's no like building slides on the PowerPoint. And they don't get to look at their slide because we call them out on slide peaks if they do it. It's literally, I am the expert on this. I'm going to tell you about it and I'm going to use these slides to back it up, but I'm not going to read off them or anything else. His was so perfect. I was just sitting there thinking, I made the wrong choice. Because they had chosen me to go there. And I thought, there is no way that I can live up to this. Yeah, and I'm with you. I've watched, just being on staff now for about eight months, I've watched a fair amount of murder boards and pre-boards for that. And you can see the difference if you go to, say, a pre-board three or four. And these guys are going to go through eight or nine pre-boards before he even gets the chance to give his murder board. You know, as well as I do, they get the training officer, stand officer has to sit in on one of them. And that's the one that gives them the thumbs up to even be able to go to their murder board. Right. That's a daunting thing. And even for me as the CO, as an 05, I had to sit in a TOSO pre-board and have the lieutenant training officer and lieutenant stand officer sit there and critique me in my khakis and talk about my stage presence. Because you were given the patch lecture. So you had the same requirements. They weren't going to let you slack off just because you're older. 
If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. I'm happy to do it. And it was an awesome process and it's very cool. And, and you know, my lecture is only 45 minutes. It's not like these guys where they're going through multiple parts and they've got to go through the media and they've got to make sure that everything is flawless. And we do pick it apart. I mean, you sit in on a pre-board, you know, you talk about the brief and the debrief for the flights. You know, if you sit through a two and a half hour pre-board, the debrief of all those, you know, say three to four parts is probably going to be in excess of three, three and a half hours. Oh, it's an all-day event. It is. <laughs> and a murder board is even more. Oh, yeah. Because when you throw all the bros in the auditorium, so now there's a staff of 24 folks sitting there watching you and critiquing everything you do. Because you they're can, all experts on this too, by exactly. the way. <laughs> and when you look out at the audience and you got that little sweat dripping off your brow and you're <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, man. And, and, you know, they're talking about, they're going to critique your time hack on the front end. They're going to critique the fade on your music. They're going to talk about your R and your T you were touching on this slide. But you know why we do that? Because we want that perfection. Because when I got that young lieutenant that is sitting in that auditorium just like you said before, I want him to have zero distractions. I don't want him looking at a slide when the guy's talking about something else. And that's why we bring up a blank slide, right? So there's all those things that we go through and we rip that lecture apart. You'd be amazed to see the difference between a pre-board one or two and a murder board. I mean, I can say with enough now that I've seen it, I've sat through a pre-board two or a pre-board three and then go in and sit through the murder board on that last day. And it is a very polished product by the time these guys are finished with it. Right. So every other person on the staff ends up seeing the lecture twice because the pre-board, as you're calling it, is a lecture that you're giving, but there may only be two or three people in the room. And then when the two ranking lieutenants, so this is not a very top-heavy organization. It's really run by the uh, the Indians, if you will. But there's two that migrate to the top based on performance and everything else. Once they give it the blessing, then everybody comes back and you hear it again. So I'll tell you, just to finish the point is I ended up with two lectures and the first one, it wasn't perfect, but it rarely is. And the point is again, that if you do make a mistake that you don't draw this big, Oh my gosh, and make a distraction out of it. You just, Oh, you know what? And here's the picture of this or whatever. In my case, I was, you say correction and you right, continue and you move on. But the second time I ended up with a four part lecture it was three and a half hours. I'll never forget when I wrapped up on the last slide, any questions, you know, thanks. Give me five minutes for critiques or whatever. Like we always do. I'd never felt higher. It was still, I think, to this day, the pinnacle of my career because I did a three and a half hour lecture without the use of notes. I mean, I'm sure there was one or two things, but from my point of view, I nailed it. And so it was great because, and I'm not bragging about Jello here. I'm saying what the human being is capable of is amazing because you pour yourself into this thing as a Top Gun instructor and you do become the fleet expert on it and you know it so well. I mean, I could talk about myself for three and a half hours and I felt it was the same way about that particular subject because you just gotten to the point through the sharpening, if you will, of your fellow instructors and the research that you do that by the time you give it, you really have earned the right to be called the fleet expert. And then I'll tell you one more thing. When I left and was on my train officer tour, which I think is where we met, different squadron, but same air wing, Another squadron had asked me to come over and talk about an area that was not my subject matter expertise. And I remember giving basically what like a chalk talk about it. And when I got done and we finished with questions and I looked at what I'd written on the board, I just had this epiphany. It's like, I didn't know I knew that. <laughs> but you're so exposed to it from being there, living it day in and day out that I would say, tell me your thoughts, but a former Top Gun instructor who goes back to the fleet as a training officer is probably about the best of the best. And I, I hate to use that term. Based on what they've been through, there's not much more a guy can do without being, uh, forget graduate level, that's PhD at that point. And he's at the top of his game. And 
you said it best. You go back and you do that lecture. And I'll tell you, that is probably one of the most humbling experiences to go through that process. But you realize at the end that you're so good that you take, you know, maybe eight, nine, 10 weeks off before you got to give it the next time. And it comes back because you put so much effort into making it good. And then you know it so well that you can basically kind of go off the cuff as you do the lecture for the class. And you don't worry about getting a little out of order because you know exactly what you're talking about. and You know exactly where you are. I'll tell you, even on my last time I gave, the second time I gave the patch lecture, I was so comfortable that I cut a bunch of slides out and I put a blank slide in it because I thought the information was so important that I didn't want them looking at anything on the slide. And I just talked through it. And I had about a 10-minute conversation with the students saying, hey, I don't want you even looking at what's up on the screen. I want you to look at me and listen to what I'm talking about because I think it's that important. And that's where these guys get to. They get so good that they might go and click through their slides real quick the night before. But the next day, they just rock through it and they nail it every time. So you go through all that work to graduate from the class. Then you get on the staff, you get a subject area, then you got to be the expert at that. Then you've got to probably learn how to instruct in the section and division phases you were talking about. It's probably not a very easy tour, huh? No, uh, these guys put in a lot of effort. I think one of my favorite lines that I usually hear from guys as they leave staff is that I love this tour and I hated it at the same time because (laughs) they do put in, I mean, and you said it best, all the things you've got to do. And, you know, we haven't even talked about the fact that, you know, we fly the F-16 up in Fallon and, and we've got Viper U. So a lot of my guys, especially top gun folks have to go learn how to fly the F-16 too. So now they're triple NATOPS qualified. So they've got a qualification in the A through D Hornet. They've got a qualification in the EF, the Super Hornet. Now they've got a qualification in the F-16A. So you got to know stuff cold. And then just like you said, they get done with that lecture process and becoming the SME. We've talked about it a lot, even on staff, but yes, you are now what we call the SME after your lecture process, but you're still very much learning what's going on. Oh, sure. That never ends. Yeah. Now you go through the whole IUT process and you learn how to be a good adversary to make sure that the red air presentation for the students is good. Then you learn how to be a section instructor. Then you learn how to be a BFM instructor, and then you're going to learn how to be a division instructor kind of in your last year. Right as you're leaving. Yeah. So IUT being instructor under training. So you've got to learn how to teach all those things. And then right as you're leaving, you've got to teach those other guys that were you two years ago, how to teach that. So it's like this circular argument, but when you leave, you really are, there's no one better. Yep. Well, that's pretty amazing. All right, so it's not a staff of 24 Mavericks. Uh, it's not a bunch of guys that can just do whatever they want. Flybys, is that, does that happen? It might be the exact opposite. It's probably the most humble group of guys you'll ever meet. They are quiet professionals is kind of how I would put it. There's not a lot of hot dogging. Okay, no flybys. Volleyball? No volleyball. No volleyball, okay. The pool's also filled in and found, so there's no pool anymore. Can't drive the golf carts into the pool. Complicated relationships? No, there's really actually not a lot of drama. Okay. It's actually pretty good. So again, a a real world movie on Top Gun would be pretty boring. Would be, yeah. You talk about the competition between, (laughs) I'm going to say it, Maverick and Iceman. There's no competition at Top Gun. These guys are... No trophies? No trophies. Okay. Yeah, got it. No, there's no trophies. Uh, These guys are working to build each other up. They want to make each other better. The students in the class want to make each other better. Like I've got some folks on staff that are probably the best... 1v1 in the airplane that I've ever seen in my life. You know, I get to fly against those guys and get humbled. And it's a very cool experience to watch them either make a mistake or do something that they didn't intend to do and come back and admit to it. And it just devastates them because they're like, I got to fix this. (laughs) And these are the guys that know better than anybody out in the fleet how to do this. I mean, these guys just, they're at the top of their game, but they're very hard on themselves and they hold themselves to that high standard all the time. Well, it just goes to prove uh, what I tried to intimate earlier, which is mistakes happen. Everybody, even these guys make them. I think the trick is you own up to it. Number one, well, you recognize it maybe number one, you own up to it. Number two, but then you also evaluate it and you try to fix it. You learn it and you take it to the next phase and you fix it. Sure. If that guy can make it, anyone can. Well, so I guess they're talking about coming out with a top gun too. Maybe it'll be more accurate, huh? I would hope so. Uh, we've actually had the producer and the uh, writer of Top Gun 2 have uh, visited us in Fallon. No kidding. Uh, and talked about the uh, next movie. I'm not going to give away any secrets. Okay. But uh, they are a, a cool group of guys and they were very interested. They seemed very knowledgeable about Top Gun. And we did try to 
impart some of the wisdom of what's going on up there and try to show them exactly what we do on a daily basis. They got to sit through an event. They got to talk to all the bros on staff and they got to get a run through of kind of everything that goes on at Top Gun on a daily basis. So we'd like to think that they're going to take that and put it in a realistic type movie. We'll see, I guess. What does the future hold for the school? I hope it continues to produce the most high quality naval aviators for a long, long time to come. It's a place that has, you know, almost 50 years of history. So in 2019, it will be the 50th anniversary of Top Gun. That's a long tradition that started with some folks that are still out there and and they're very into the Top Gun thing and they're very supportive of everything that's going on. And the Naval Aviation Enterprise is very supportive of what's going on at Top Gun because they know that we produce those high quality graduates that are going to go back there and do that training officer tour and continue to make those fleet squadrons better. Well, we'll have to make sure that someone prepares the proper anniversary celebration of that one because that's a big milestone and uh, get as many of the old bros as you call them, which aren't all men, by the way, right? There have been female uh, Top Gun instructors. We actually have a female chief on staff right now. That's why I kept trying to correct myself and go back. I think I said it in the uh, episode zero. We tend to speak in the masculine terms because numerically that's the most common, but it's by no means intentional as far as trying to rule out anyone. But bros are just the name that the Top Gun instructors give each other and um, yeah, that'll be a really exciting celebration. I hope I can make that. Well, Grant, I want to uh, thank you for coming on today and uh, dispelling possibly some of the silliness of the movie, but also talking about Top Gun, what it does, not only for the Navy and for individual pilots and uh, air crew and adversary, but really the nation, because these are the people that are out there taking care of business uh, yeah. over Syria, over Libya, over everywhere around the world. And the few that go through are influencing all the rest in the air wing and making them better. And it's an important school founded on uh, a lack of capability that we had, but God willing, going forward, making us uh, lethal and, and effective while there's still manned aircraft. Huh? Yep. Glad to do it, Joe. It was awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, hey, wait, before you go, we do have a little tradition here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast that uh, everybody's got to explain their call sign. So, uh, Grand Mariner, uh, tell us yours. All right. So it's not even that cool a story. <laughs> you obviously knew, I'll leave him nameless, but you knew the skipper that gave me the call sign. He was 51% of the vote is what I always say. Hopefully he doesn't ever listen to this, but obviously it's just a take on my last name. He, uh, thought it was Marnier when I showed up. So therefore like the liquor, Grand Marnier, I just got stuck with Grand. Uh, I wish there was a really cool story behind it. There is one little kind of cool story. That's a take on it that some of the, you know, my department head buddies and folks know that one, but I was called Grande for a while, like the (laughs) Spanish variant. Sure, I'll make the story relatively quick, but I actually got deported from Qatar, which is that little country in the, in the Persian Gulf. (laughs) I remember this. During my department head tour around 2013, 2014. But I wound up in Rota, Spain for four days and they all thought I was just drinking wine and eating tapas on the beach. So uh, I got back and uh, they all started calling me Grande because uh, that's the Spanish for... It was just some diplomatic paperwork that wasn't done correctly or something. I think it was kind of a little bit of a... This was a misunderstanding between the Qataris and the United States Navy. That's how we'll label it. All right. So grand, like as in Grand Manier, not because of your stature, the fact that you're like six foot eight or something? No, it's, it has nothing to do with that. It was okay. solely that. And that's what stuck from the first call sign review board I had. And that's what it's been ever since. Probably better because if you'd have done something dumb, we'd be calling you that. And then you would have to live with that. But you're not six, eight. How tall are you? I'm only six, four. Six four. Okay, I was close. All right, Grand. Well, I do appreciate you talking Top Gun with us today, and I uh, just want to wish you all the best in the remaining of your career. I know you got a bright future ahead of you, whatever you decide to do. But unless you got anything else, let's get out of here. Nope. Let's do it. All right, Grand. We sound like babies back then, and certainly my podcasting skills, I hope, have improved. And I sounded really hoarse. Was that because we were having a good time at Hook? Probably. <laughs> all right, man. So let's see. Again, we're going to get caught up with you now. You were a Super Hornet squadron commander in the fleet before the interview. You were the Top Gun commanding officer at the time, and now you command an entire carrier air wing. Dude. Yeah, pretty awesome career path, right? (laughs) No, so, I mean, since I left Top Gun, I got to go down the hall to work at Strike and be the boss there for about 18 months. And then I left there to basically start my training track for carrier air wing commander which was a good nine to 12 months of my time that was spent going to some schools and doing some other things. I got to spend six months in the desert as the battle director at the CAOC, which is the Combined Air and Space Operations Center, for those that don't know. It's basically the workshop for the CFAC, who's the Combined Forces Air Component Commander. 
who runs all of the air assets in theater over Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. So I got to be his night watch standard on the floor and control the entire ATO, which is the air tasking order for all those jets and airplanes that were going back and forth into Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq for six months. After I was done with that, I came back here and uh, moved to Lemoore, California, the beautiful garden spot of the Central Valley. You know it well. I know that, Jello. <laughs> yes, and did. got to go through my little bit of syllabus to get ready. And I went to the boat in December of 2019. And then about July of 2020, I took over as deputy carrier wing commander. So I was the deputy to the boss for 18 months. And in that time, we did a little bit of workups, went to Fallon for three weeks ourselves. And then we went on deployment to 7th Fleet to uh, Indo-PACOM and basically the South China Sea for about six months and then came back here. And in uh, December of 2021, I took over the air wing as the boss. You are now the CAG. I'm the CAG. Man, you've been on the fast track all along and it's been fun to watch. But as I recall, I think right before you went to the desert, and that's always good for your professional development, but also you bring a lot of experience out there. So they like having you. But I think that was right after one of our steelhead fishing trips in the fall. It was about two or three weeks after we did that yeah. trip. So it was good to send you off. And then I tried to get you back in time for another trip, but it uh, didn't quite work out. But we've had some time on the water since, so that's all been good. You're still doing well, and we'll take a peek into the future here before we wrap up. But, you know, in re-listening to our interview, the only, I don't want to call it a correction, but you said something like you generalized F-4 squadrons were great at air-to-air. And, of course, we all know that Phantoms dropped a lot of bombs in the war. But the point was the bomb dropping wasn't really a problem. It was the air-to-air that was. Yeah, 100%. I saw that you were talking about that. I re-looked at what we were talking about. And you're right. There was F-8 Crusaders were good at air-to-air. I mean, they were the last gunfighter, right? right? So they were really good at doing that. And they were probably one of the best point defense options the U.S. Navy had at that point. And the F-4 was really the first multi-role fighter, right? It was good mm-hmm. at air-to-air. It was good at air-to-surface. But a lot of the failings came from the F-4 not being able to defend itself. And that's kind of where the point of Top Gun came from. Is Those were the combat systems that people didn't know how to use because the F-4 was a fairly new platform. And it brought some things to the game that People just weren't trained up well enough on, and that's where Top Gun really started its infancy from. And as we learned from Brad Elward on the last two episodes, I mean, they just weren't training to dogfighting. They were over-relying on the missiles, and it was just a series of bad choices that led to poor performance, but you guys have turned that around in the last 50 years. And you remember, right? The F-4 was designed without a gun. You had to put a gun pod on it to use the gun, right? (laughs) I think they put a gun in later models, as I understand. I think they did too, but I think early on it was without the gun, right? Yeah. Oh, in fact, Tiger on our F-4 episode said when they added it, he was disappointed because it BFM so much better without it, (laughs) without the weight. But I think by then he was flying it in training. So, all right, man. So again, we recorded that in, I think, September of 17. So it's been almost five years. And in that time, specific to, well, you, you just told us what's new with you, but Top Gun has changed, right? So they retired the FA-18 Hornet, at least the legacy Hornet, as we would call it. And they introduced the F-35 Lightning II. So what's new? I mean, again, you're not there anymore, but I know you deal with Fallon and those guys a lot. What's changed or what's new with Top Gun? I think you're correct. And I think the biggest takeaway for people that aren't totally familiar with Top Gun is probably the integration piece, right? Now you can take fourth gen and fifth generation fighters. And I think we talked about this last time, right? The fifth gen fighter is kind of the newest hotness, right? It's got Mm -hmm. all the combat systems. And I think you said sensor fusion last time, which is one of those things that it does well. It has a lot of battlefield situational awareness. And I think what you're seeing differently now in the class is that they can let those F-18 Super Hornets, the fourth generation fighter, integrate with the F-35s and the fifth generation fighter. So they're getting a little bit more training on how all that's going to integrate in the battlefield. I think really the other thing you're going to see is that there's almost two simultaneous classes going on now, right? It's an F-18 class and an F-35 class because they still got to build those foundational pieces. They've got to get those individual elements of 1v1 air combat maneuvering and then probably section tactics phases that get them through some of that stuff to get them to the integration piece. But I know there's a lot more focus on integration. And even outside of the class itself, they're looking at trying to integrate with more Navy assets, right? So Hmm. I don't think that's happening quite yet. But the idea would be that a lot of those weapon schools up in Fallon are starting to work their classes to sort of overlap. And that that student that comes out to be the instructor then is a lot more knowledgeable on how to work the entire air wing, right? Including E-18G growlers, E-2D Hawkeye, Advanced Hawkeyes, or MH-60 Romeo, 
helicopters and work that entire air wing problem instead of just knowing their own little platform, right? If, if that makes sense to the listener. Well, that sounds a little bit more like the Air Force paradigm, right? They all come together as a giant class and then they kind of split off, do their own thing, come back together for the capstone or whatever they might call it. Right. And the idea is if you wear the patch, you understand maybe you're not the expert in the other platforms, but you've at least been exposed to it and done some mission planning and training missions. And so I think that's one of the bigger pieces in Fallon, too. They're all getting exposure to all those other weapon schools. I know the class itself isn't there yet. And I think, you know, that's something they're working towards. But yeah. We'll never lose that bit of you have to learn your own platform to the best of your ability, right? That's the Top Gun kind of thing, right? Is yeah. You're never going to lose sight of the fact that I want to teach that guy to be the best F-18 Super Hornet pilot or F-35 Lightning II pilot. But those are sufficiently different, it sounds like you're saying, that they are almost parallel classes. You know, I wasn't around, but when the F-4 and the F-14 went through and maybe they were doing it at the same time, I don't know. But when I was there, the F-14 and the F-18 were in the same class. And in fact, we'd fly mixed section, mixed division, and it was the same syllabus, but with some differences, the Tomcat and the Hornet. Yeah, you know, more or less do some of the same stuff. But it sounds like the F-35 just really is that much of a game changer. I'm not completely up on the syllabus, but as it was in development, there's a lot of differences between what we got to train those guys to do vice what we train a Super Hornet pilot to do. So I think there's some definite convergence of those two syllabi, but I think there's a lot of it that they're going through individually. And again, we're still in sort of the infancy, I think, of that school with the F-35 going through. So I'll keep in touch with those guys. And again, I know some of the new guys going up there. So it'll be an interesting conversation. And I get to start my own workup cycle here. So we'll be in Fallon <laughs> shortly to live the good life and get some good flying. Oh, uh, yeah. Always good times up there, especially when you're detaching there. All right. So check this out. I went back to episode seven on our YouTube channel and I thought, oh, this will be good. Here's a whole repository of questions and comments that I can bring up with Grant and we can answer them publicly. Well, I don't know if you spend a lot of time on YouTube, but <laughs> true to my experience, most of it was somewhat worthless, I hate to say, <laughs> or just complaints or trolls or whatever. But there was one that was interesting. It said, uh, curious, where did the Top Gun name come from? It always seems to be capitalized like an acronym, but I can't seem to find a breakdown of what it stands for if it is an acronym. What do you think? I know for sure it's not an acronym. We can just kill that right now. Okay. I can't say with 100% certainty where the name Top Gun came from. I think it's really just a play on the Top Gun, right? Even two words, even though it's all cap one word in the for the Navy Fighter Weapons School, I think it was just trying to be a phrase of like, hey, you're the best, baddest guy with the gun, right? Like you're mm-hmm. good at air-to-air gunnery. You're good at doing that air-to-air mindset, which is what they were trying to teach back then, right? I think you look at a lot of the early stuff, and you know, if you read the alt report, you know, where we came from, missiles were failing because guys didn't know how to use them, and a lot of times they were having to use the gun to kill the bad guy, right? If they had one. That's just where it breaks down to. Again, I'm not saying I'm 100% right. That's just my thought process (laughs) on it. We'd probably have to get some of the original bros to see if they could fill us in on where exactly and how exactly they came up with the moniker. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they coined the phrase. I mean, to be a top gun, you could be a top dog, you can be the head honcho. I mean, I think they adapted it. And now we all think of it as the school in the movie, but I think it was just an expression. Yeah, I think you're right. So another thing that's happened since 17, as listeners know, we just got done with two episodes with Brad Elward is his big book. And I'm curious, I found myself in there. Did you have a part in that? And Did you get a copy? I have a chance to look through it. I have not seen a copy yet. I will definitely be trying to get my hands on one. But yeah, I talked to Brad several times as he was writing his book. And I think a lot of the discussion we had was just similar to what we had in our first conversation about Top Gun was what are the instructors like? What's it like to be there? Mm -hmm. Sort of explaining to him. And you know, Brad's a smart guy, right? He understands and he spends a lot of time at the schoolhouse and knows how it works. But you know, to get it across to his audience is that it's really not like the movie, right? It's about 180 degrees opposite, right? <laughs> it's a lot of hard work and not a lot of play like what's going on in the movie. Yeah. Well, as we will find out on the next episode with a couple of guys that were involved in the filming of the first one, they were told multiple times by the producers and directors, it's not a documentary, it's a movie. So The documentary about Top Gun probably wouldn't sell a lot of tickets. (laughs) No, as we identified on that interview we just had. So yeah, for sure. All right. You and I had a chance to hang out in 2019 at the 50th anniversary. Thank goodness that was before COVID because that was a lot of fun. And just so great to see all the old bros and have the panels and everything else. And I don't know if there's anything else to say about it, but it did happen since we interviewed. I think that was fantastic. And I think it's a testament to how much people are really into this business, right? I mean, there was a huge showing at the 50th anniversary, a lot of active duty folks, a lot of retirees, 
you sat at the dinner, right? I mean, that place was full. Oh yeah. So to me, that's a testament to how much this affects people's lives, right? There's guys coming back, you know, Yank was there, right? Like Mm -hmm. guys who founded the schoolhouse were sitting in that room (laughs) and having dinner together and having drinks. I mean, that's just an awesome, epic thing, right? Oh, for sure. But it's such a big part of your life because you have such a steep learning curve. I should think of a better expression, but the murder board alone is like this trial by fire. And then when other people have gone through it, you have this bonding thing. So I even put it in the category of like, you know, the schoolhouse moved from Miramar to Fallon, but I think that made the group of bros even tighter, right? Like you've lived in Fallon just like I have, right? It's an interesting place. Oh, yeah. The tight bond between all those guys at Top Gun, it's almost a family when you get to that point, right? Because there's just nothing else going on in Fallon. So you're constantly hanging out, live next door to everybody anyway. You're kind of basically with everyone all the time. So it's a real big bonding experience when you go. Yeah. There, right? No, that's an interesting point you make because when it was in Miramar, and I'm speculating now, right? It was maybe just another thing you do and you live wherever you live and then you go to work and it's still San Diego. And you're going back to a fleet squadron that arguably is probably right there in San Diego, right? Yeah. Right yeah. down the flight line. So yeah, it's a good point. You're kind of going out of your way. And when you get there, you're working real hard. And of course, a lot of the spouses will bond too, because they have to rely on each other when the bros are Saturday murder boards or whatever they're doing. 100% or Saturday, Sunday murder boards. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then also, since we interviewed, a Top Gun bro has had an air-to-air victory. And there is a new glass block outside of the schoolhouse uh, with his name on it, which is pretty wow. cool. Is your audience familiar with the glass blocks? Have you talked about those? I don't know if we have. Okay. Well, because they're familiar with, I think, just from the movie and pictures of the silhouettes painted on the old hangars and Miramar, which I don't think are there anymore. And so there was all the glass blocks in Miramar that they then brought to Fallon and they're all in the fence outside the hangar Fallon. Okay. But now Mob has his own glass block that would be put with all the rest of the MIG kills. Gotcha. You alluded to it, you know, pretty cool for a bro to go out there and get a kill. And I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that happened is still at a different classification level that we probably can't talk about here. But I think one of the things, and if anybody goes back, I think you can still watch the panel we did at Hook that I moderated with those guys that were out there when it happened. I think Mob gives a lot of credit, which is probably due to his time at Top Gun and getting trained up there, right? It's one of those things where he knew exactly what to do in the situation. He knew what he was supposed to do, and he made use of the systems he had, and he got an air-to-air kill out of it, right? Which is very, very rare. Very rare in these days. (laughs) Yeah, lest we watch the movie and think it just happens all the time. So Brad, in his big book, does talk about the fact that Mob had been quoted as saying, yeah, you know, I work so hard because I want one of my graduates or somebody flies with. He was clear to make it about somebody else to have this when they need it someday and maybe get an air-to-air kill. And Brad just wrote it, like, you know, it was serendipitous because it turned out to be him. Yeah, very cool. So yeah, I know that there was a time he was talking more about it. And then right now it's kind of hush hush again. And at some point, you know, if we can get him on the show or debrief it kind of thing, that'd be cool. But obviously we'd never want to disclose anything on here that's going to make your job harder. Because look, you're a friend of mine and you and all your air wings out there still getting it done. So last thing I want to do is- We get to go on the pointy end still. (laughs) That's right. And then the last thing is, because we're just a week away, is you called it Top Gun 2 at the time. I guess if that's what they called it, that's all we knew. But whatever became of that, did they come around and make your life miserable or was it fun? I mean- So I never really was there still when they did most of the filming. And I was down at strike by the time they did that. And honestly, a lot of the filming happened outside of Fallon, right? They went up to Whidbey Island for a while. They were down in Lemoore for a while. Right. It was cool. I did get to go see one of the brief days, which was interesting, right? To watch how they set everything up and do the entire day of filming. Obviously, and you've seen the movie, right? They get some pretty cool footage, right? Like they do a really good job of oh, yeah. of setting all that up and making it so that it looks very realistic. And all of it was, right? It's all real flying. So I think it's pretty cool. I can't wait to see it. I really hope it's a good movie. Well, everything willing. Well, you're going to see it with me on the 27th here in San Diego, and then uh, we'll get your opinion immediately after. So yeah, I did get to see it May 4th at North Island. I missed the uh, screening that had Tom Cruise, but they showed it again after, and I went up early and held a spot in line and jumped in with some family and friends. And yeah, I enjoyed it. So I've been kind of tight-lipped about it. I want people to go experience it, and I don't want to be the one who blows it for them. Although I did see on YouTube today that someone, I think from that viewing, was showing a little bit of something they surreptitiously uh, recorded, which really bummed me out. Yeah, because it's like, look, don't ruin it for people. Plus, Paramount had anti-piracy guys there with like 
badges on. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they obviously, you know, that's a big deal. So they had their snooping equipment and we're watching for folks, which on a Navy base, you wouldn't think you have to worry about, but all right, man. Well, it's easiest to get you on because the uh, folks know you and you know, you're know you still doing the thing. Good grief, dude. How many uh, hours and traps are you up to these days? I'm rapidly approaching 4,000 hours and I went over my thousandth trap on the last deployment. Oh my gosh. And so how long have you been on a ship at this point? You've probably been on it more than some kids have been alive. Almost a quarter of my active duty. I'm going to go over 22 years here in uh, about 14 days. And I've been at sea for a little over five years of that time, which is for us aviators, right? Is day for day. Oh, yeah. I don't get to go to a ship that's in dry dock <laughs> or in port and call it sea time. It doesn't work that way. All my time is at actual sea. All right. So you told us earlier what's happened in the last five years. Sounds like it's been pretty eventful. As far as the crystal ball will tell you, what are the next five hold for you? I don't know. I really hope it's still good things. I love to do this business. And uh, as long as it's still fun and it works for the family, I hope I can keep doing it. I like to do great things for naval aviation. I hope there's something they'll find for me. And if not, I'll just have to grow up and figure out what I'm going to do. <laughs> I actually have to go get a real job and I don't get to wear my pajamas to work anymore. I love that joke. Mom, when I grow up, I want to be a fighter pilot. Sorry, son, you can't do both. <laughs> <laughs> you either have to grow up or you can be a fighter pilot. Exactly right. Oh, exactly. dear. Son or daughter, I suppose. But at any rate, all right, final question. You've been deported from <laughs> any more countries? <laughs> no, I can't say that I've added any more to my bucket list. I think one was good enough. I was surprised they let me back into Qatar, honestly. Oh, why? They keep some sort of blacklist, rather? Yeah, I was on the blacklist. Uh, <laughs> and it took going all the way to, uh, I think we had to go to an SES at the State Department to confirm that I wasn't still on a blacklist in Qatar, which is the only reason I was allowed to go back to the CAOC when I did. What's SES again? Like, uh... It's a flag or general officer civilian rank, right? Like, yeah, the equivalent of someone who's super high, but as yeah. a civilian. All right, dude. Well, that was a lot of fun. Appreciate your time coming back to help us revisit Top Gun versus Top Gun episode seven. It's still one of our most successful episodes. So uh, appreciate you coming back, Grant. And as a reminder, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components or what? Top Gun, Grant? Or Top Gun. <laughs> All right, man. Well, good luck with your workups. Take care and uh, appreciate you coming back. Thanks for having me on again, Joe. Look forward to seeing you down there. All right. And for everyone else, we'll be back in five days, as I said earlier, for an episode on the filming of the original movie with two gentlemen who were lieutenants stationed back at then NAS Miramar in the mid-80s and had a hand, and in some cases, a cameo in the original blockbuster. Until then, we'll see ya. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.